This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Anthony DePiran. Anthony is a lawyer and he's the author of City of Protest, a recent history of dissent in Hong Kong. Anthony joined me from Hong Kong to discuss the recent protests about the government's proposed extradition bill. Coming up is a, another very interesting person who has um, a p- very particular perspective and vantage point. Uh, I'm speaking about Anthony DePiran, who is a Hong Kong-based lawyer and writer, and um, he's written a very short uh, book which is called City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong. It's a excellent um background to the history of protest in Hong Kong and what makes Hong Kong very special and um, unique. And so we're just going to speak to Anthony on Skype and I'm hoping this all works and if it doesn't we'll call him on the phone but um, I'll just see if we've got Anthony on Skype. Hi there. Uh, Hi, good morning. Good morning to you. It's great to have you on the show and thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, there's um, such a, a fascinating number of events that have been happening in Hong Kong and not even necessarily uh, in just recent times. There's been, as you say in, in this book, City of Protest, which came out a couple of years ago, that you know his, Hong Kong has a strong history of protesting and political participation um, and it is quite a unique situation that Hong Kong finds itself in given the um, their history and the involvement of British imperialism for a significant proportion of Hong Kong's existence. So I just wanted to quickly cover off on the background about Hong Kong and what Hong Kong actually is and how it relates to mainland China nowadays. So could you, I guess, explain or share with us Hong Kong's arrangement and how it came to be what it is now? Yeah, certainly. And look, yeah, it's been a really a historic week here in Hong Kong. But as you say, it's not just a, a one-off event. It's part of a very long um, and proud history of, of protest and dissent in Hong Kong. But Hong Kong has really always been a, a very special and unique place in the world. It was um, originally um, occupied by the British after the Opium Wars back in the 19th century. Um, uh, so China was forced to basically cede Hong Kong to the British, who then took it over as a colony. And it was a a colony that was to be held by them uh, until 1997. Um, And at that point, um, the UK and China agreed that uh, the UK would hand Hong Kong back to China to be ruled by China. But of course, the historical development of Hong Kong compared to the rest of China was was very different at that point, Hong Kong having been ruled by by the British for more than a century. Um, And meanwhile, while, uh, you know, mainland China, of course, had had the communist revolution after World War II and in 1949 had de- developed in a completely different trajectory. So in order to sort of figure out how to integrate Hong Kong back into the rest of mainland China, um, Deng Xiaoping, who was the ruler of China at the time, came up 
with the idea of one country, two systems. And what this meant was that Hong Kong would be part of China, would be part of the one, the one country, but the existing system that had developed in Hong Kong would continue to exist separately. So Hong Kong, even after the handover to China in 1997, has continued to have its own currency, um, its own separate legal system based on the, the British common law legal system, the same as we have in Australia, um, uh, its own separate financial system, um, and most importantly to the Hong Kong people and most importantly to what's been going on this week, its own set of rights and freedoms um, in enshrined in, in Hong Kong's constitution, um, things like the, the right to freedom of speech, the right to a, a free press, uh, the right to freedom of assembly and, and the right to, to, to freedom of protest, and also very importantly for many Hong Kongers, uh, the right to exercise freedom of religion. All these things are, are, are rights that um, aren't enjoyed fully in mainland China um, and, and are enjoyed fully in, in Hong Kong under the one country, two systems um, formula. And so that's sort of the, the position that Hong Kong finds itself in, and, um, and that really is sort of the, the source of, of much of the conflict of, of the past week and indeed um, the past 20 years as, as Hong Kong has sort of struggled to assert their identity as, as, as a unique place continuing to be um, part of China but apart from it in many ways. Yes, it's an interesting tension that exists and, uh, and interesting that... Um, Deng Xiaoping uh, conceived of a time when the two would merge or become one uh, in all senses of the word and I wonder how that will play out. It's going to be a very interesting one given the culture of protest in Hong Kong and the real commitment that a lot of its people have to the rights that they have at the moment and the fact that they probably would not have a number of those rights in mainland China if they were to be part of the People's Republic of China in every sense. Yes, that's right. So one of the, the really important parts of that, that constitution that, that Hong Kong got when they were handed back to China in 1997 is the guarantee that, that all of those rights and freedoms would last for 50 years without change. Um, and so the expiry date on that is, is 1st of July 2047. Um, now, the, the, the law doesn't say what will happen in 2047. Um, certainly at that point, mainland China is free to sort of fully integrate Hong Kong back into the rest of mainland China. But they also may choose to continue, you know, leaving Hong Kong the way it is. Um, but, you know, certainly there is an expectation one way or the other that by the time we get to 2047, Hong Kong and the rest of China will have converged in some way or another. Now, I think when the British signed the, the Sino-British Joint Declaration that sort of set out the terms under which Hong Kong would be returned to China, uh, they signed that in 1984, they probably were thinking that by, by 2047, you know, China will probably be a, a free democratic pluralistic society and Hong Kong will be able to fit in just fine. Um, whereas as we, you know, as the years tick by, that's looking increasingly unlikely. And I think from Beijing's side of the table, they expect that as we get closer to 2047, um, you know, Beijing's influence in Hong Kong will increasingly grow such that by the time we get to 2047, um, there won't be much difference and, and, and Hong Kong will merge into China at that time the way that it is. But that's really one of the, the big causes for anxiety here in Hong Kong. The people are aware of the, the ticking clock of of 2047 in the background, but with things like this proposed extradition law that people have been protesting about over the, the past week and, and various other 
um, uh, gradually creeping um, encroachments on Hong Kong's rights and freedoms. People here are worried that uh, that timeline is basically being advanced by 30 years and, and the things that they were preparing to sort of have to start thinking about and struggling for in 2047 are, are happening right now. Yes, exactly. It, that's why it's not just about an extradition bill. It really is about a whole lot more than that. And mm. um, I'd like to understand a bit about Beijing and the Communist Party and how China itself has uh, some sway or influence politically with Hong Kong and particularly around mm. the structure or the governance of uh, the parliament and the lawmaking bodies because um, it seems not necessarily a particularly what Australians might conceive of is a very democratic way of um, appointing parliamentarians or legislators. No, not at all. It's at best a, a, a semi-democratic system. Um, so there's two key sources of power in Hong Kong. One is the, the chief executive, which was sort of the position that replaced the, the governor under the British colonial system. And you could think of sort of as a president or a, or a prime minister, although the way that she or he is appointed is, is quite unique. Um, the chief executive is not elected by the people of Hong Kong. Um, so the current chief executive, Carrie Lam, and, and the ones before her, uh, have been elected by a, an election committee that is made up of only 1,200 people. And those people are drawn from the various business elites, uh, professional groups, and other special interest groups from Hong Kong society. So it's a very small circle of um, of Hong Kong's elites who, who themselves choose who the chief executive is going to be. And the practice for the, the, the appointment of the last, all of the last chief executives has been that you know, Beijing has subtly but very clearly pointed out who their preferred candidate is, um, and their preferred candidate uh, has always won. And, and that is because the pro-Beijing interest groups dominate that 1,200-person election committee. So Beijing effectively controls who is appointed as the chief executive, and the chief executive, as the sort of semi-presidential figure in Hong Kong, um, wields significant power in terms of setting government policy, setting the budget, um, proposing new laws, making all of the important appointments to everything from the government bodies down to all of the vice chancellors and the university councils of all the public universities in Hong Kong. So it's an extremely powerful position. Um, so then the other body that is sort of responsible for governing Hong Kong is what's called the Legislative Council, Hong Kong's parliament. Um, and it is selected by a, another very odd semi-democratic process. Half of the seats in that parliament are elected by the people, um, you know, with different seats and people voting in each seat, exactly the same as, as we vote for the lower house in in Australia. But the other half of that parliament is again elected by these special interest groups. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, different professional industry groups each have a seat. So you have a seat for the Architects Association, a seat for the lawyers, a seat for the doctors, a seat for the property developers, uh, and then seats for various um, rural clan organisations, um, various industry groups such as the shipping industry, the tourism industry, and so on and so forth. And and again, that half of the parliament is dominated by the pro-Beijing business lobby. So the result of that semi-democratic system is that um, consistently, year after year, the pro-democracy parties win a majority of the popular vote. Um, but uh, because the way the system is rigged, the pro-Beijing parties end up having a majority of the seats. Um, and that means that they therefore can control the parliament and can control what, uh, what legislation gets through. Indeed, um, yeah. Sorry, go no, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, in in the past, the, the pro-democracy parties had enough of a minority that they could sort of you know, filibuster and block certain things that they didn't like. But the other development over the last couple of years is that um, the Hong Kong government, with Beijing's backing, has actually um, disqualified several pro-democracy candidates from the legislature um, and then barred other candidates for running because of their political views, which is in a addition, sort of given the pro-Beijing parties an even more entrenched position in the legislature, which has uh, yeah, really uh, g- given them a very strong hand in, in sort of running the agenda for how Hong Kong is, is governed. Yes, well, you actually just said what I was going to ask. Um, and maybe <laughs> you can expand on that, because I was going to say, I read in an op-ed that, as you say, lawmakers have been disqualified by the courts for saying their oaths too slowly or with the wrong intonation. Politicians have been forbidden to stand for election. <clears throat> A particular political party was banned activists have been sent to prison on public order offences so in recent years there has been in in many people's belief a kind of creeping control over freedom of expression or speech and freedom of protest and certainly there seems to be uh, more of a crackdown on those kinds of activities even though people still are as is very clear taking to the streets uh, when they do believe that something is wrong and they don't want um, it to occur do you think that on the ground like in terms of living there has there been any kind of sense of anxiety about what's next and um, whether there is a lot more influence coming from outside over how Hong Kong um, rules itself? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what the, the events of the last week have really been all about. Ever since um, the umbrella movement protests or the Occupy Central protests we saw here in Hong Kong five years ago and, and which uh, certainly made made TV screens and newspapers around the world then, um, the Hong Kong government with, with Beijing's backing has really been, as you say, tightening the screws on, on dissent and taking all sorts of measures um, along the lines that, that, that you just outlined. Uh, and the interesting thing has been is that they've done that in, in, a, in, a, in a creeping, gradual way, a kind of death by a thousand cuts way. Um, and it's drawn a very muted response from the Hong Kong public. There hadn't up until the past week been any really big public demonstration any really major public outcry. And I think um, you know, that certainly may have emboldened the Hong Kong government to keep pushing in that direction. And it certainly um, led people to sort of begin to ask the question, have Hong Kongers given up? Um, and is political protest uh, you know, after the, the, the so-called failure of the umbrella movement in 2014 something that, that's dead in Hong Kong? And are we not going to see these kind of protests anymore. Um, Well, I think that the last week has given a pretty clear answer to that question. And I think what it has shown is that there has been this anxiety really bubbling away and building over the last five years as people have seen these various uh, coercive measures taken, these various, this various creeping infringement on their rights and freedoms. And and this was really just that that last issue that that sort of lit the fuse and and brought them all out into the the streets. Uh, And what is underlying all of this? And and it comes back to the opening of our our conversation is what is it that makes Hong Kong different and distinct from mainland China? And I think it's it's the anxiety that, that those rights and freedoms that Hong Kongers see as really core to their identity are being are being threatened, and, and and that's what's really evoked this this visceral response that's brought you know over a million people out into the streets two weeks in a row. Yeah, it's it's astounding the scale of um, people taking part. And you mm. mentioned there Hong Kong and the fact that they have quite a distinct identity in the way 
way that mm. they see themselves and mm. how they might compare themselves to people from mainland China. What are some of the Hong Kong so-called values that mm. pe- that are often referred to as being, you know, what Hong Kongers stand for and um, and believe in? Yeah. So, and just a little bit of history is that you know going back to, to the past, you know, 20 years ago, around the time of the handover or before, at that time, Hong Kong was much wealthier than mainland China. And Hong Kong represented a, a big proportion of the mainland Chinese economy as a whole. And I think Hong Kong was, you know, perhaps at that time, had their identity tied more to the fact that they were wealthier and better off than people across the border. You know, mainland China was poor and struggling and, and Hong Kong was a developed modern economy in a developed modern city. Now, of course, in the last 20 years, China has, has progressed incredibly quickly in terms of material gains and the economy and all those sorts of things. So that distinction doesn't really hold. And indeed, Hong Kong is really reliant on, on mainland China and mainland Chinese businesses and tourists and, and customers for, for its own economy. But what has you know kept Hong Kong distinct is, as, as you just mentioned, the so-called Hong Kong core values. And these are the things that, that people look at and say, these, this is what we have that makes Hong Kong different, not only from the rest of China, but in many ways different from much of the rest of Asia. So what, what are those Hong Kong core values? They are things like all those rights and freedoms that we t- talked about earlier, the free press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and so on. It also includes the legacy of, of the, the common law legal system, that the British-based legal system that Hong Kong continues to have with an independent judiciary, which, which is not the case in the mainland. It includes clean and accountable government. Um, Hong Kong has a, an ICAC, an Independent Commission Against Corruption, um, and, and it has one of the, the sort of cleanest, uh, cleanest governments in, in, in Asia. Um, and overall, a transparent and predictable system where people feel that they can operate without undue government influence, can exercise their rights and freedoms, um, can practice whatever religions that they wish. Um, All these things are things that that Hong Kongers see as it makes them special and different from from certainly from the rest of China. And it has made Hong Kong, in a way, a real haven throughout Asia for for businesses, for for researchers, for NGOs, for um, academics, for writers and the press and and, and artists and, and cultural people. And so for any any time that Hong Kongers see that threatened in any way, um, that that really is not just, it's not just a political threat, it's a threat to their very identity. Yes. Um, And in terms of publishing, I know that's been in the news quite recently, particularly around one publisher, New Century Press, uh, which mm. is founded by Bao Pu, who mm. said that, um, you know, he sees things as becoming quite dire for him in terms of the range of books he can publish um, and that it's become more of a non-profit activity now than a business. What kind of situation do publishers of content that may be critical of uh, China or even other elements in the world? Like, uh, are there any kinds of official or unofficial ways of um, preventing ideas from circulating? Uh, yeah, there's there's two key ways. I mean, I should say there's no official censorship in Hong Kong. So in theory, you can write and publish whatever you want. But there's two key ways that that, that dissenting views are sort of suppressed. One way is through the the power of the market, the power of of, of, of cash. So one of the um, the major sort of anti-government newspapers in Hong Kong is called the Apple Daily. And what they have found is over recent years, um, uh, consistent campaign against them in terms of Beijing. 
putting pressure on companies to stop advertising with them. Um, and they have seen many of the major companies in Hong Kong, such as the major banks, um, uh, many of the major sort of retail stores and, and commercial chains and so on, have all been pulling their advertising from the Apple Daily. And of course, without advertising, a newspaper can't survive. So just the, the sheer pressure of, of Beijing influencing the market to take money away from these companies is one way to, to censor them. And the other way is the sort of um, the, the, the sort of Damocles that sort of hangs over everyone in Hong Kong of, of, of the mainland taking other measures. And the, the way that we saw this happen was a few years ago when um, uh, not Baopu and his company, but some other booksellers um, uh, were abducted from the streets of Hong Kong and another, Gui uh, Minhai, was abducted from his uh, holiday home in Thailand and taken back to China to, to, to face detention and, and, and investigation there. Now, those, um, those that, that company and the people involved with that company, those booksellers had been publishing um, books critical of the Chinese government um, and, and selling them uh, mostly to Chinese tourists visiting Hong Kong, but also I think shipping some by mail order back into mainland China. And they were they faced detention investigation there. So I think what what Baopu and his New Century Publishing were facing is similar concerns that um, you know, he's got the commercial pressure of, for example, all the bookstores in Hong Kong being controlled by Chinese state-owned companies such that he can't get his books into stores. Um, you know, so facing that commercial pressure and also the concern that, uh, that the, 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 the authorities might, might sort of come and get him. Yeah, um, there is that obviously uh, perhaps concern or anxiety around what might happen in terms of that expression. And certainly with the protests that we've seen, the right to protest is a, a right that is often exercised in Hong Kong. And you write in your book that according to police statistics in 2015, there were uh, 1,142 public processions in just mm. one year, which is equivalent to more than three per day. That is mm. like, seems to be that Hong Kongers are punching above their weight uh, when it comes to <laughs> political participation in the uh, mode of protest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, mean, I, I should say that the, the bar is pretty low. I think any gathering of more than a dozen people counts as a protest if they're out there holding banners and so on. Um, but even by that measure, it is pretty extraordinary. And I think one of the reasons for that is that, you know, given all the, the limitations on the political system that we were talking about earlier, protest is one of the last really effective ways for people to get out there and have their voice heard. So, you know, for example, they can't elect uh, the chief executive. Um, they didn't elect Carrie Lam, but um, in a way they're voting with their feet by bringing, you know, up, up, upwards of two million people out onto the street to demand her resignation. Um, and there is an interesting kind of historical context for this, which is um, going back to 2003, um, a very similar situation. The government was proposing to introduce a, a, a national security law that would have made it a crime in Hong Kong to um, you know, subvert the mainland government. Um, again, provoked a huge response from the public, a big demonstration. Um, they, they, the, the law was withdrawn. Um, and a year or so after that, the, the chief executive at the time, Tung Chi Hua, indeed resigned. Um, so that was really, really showed Hong Kong as the power of protest, that if they come out in sufficient numbers, um, they can change the government policy and they can get a leader who they didn't vote for to be, to be, to be forced out of office. Um, mm. And so... What we're really seeing is a replay of that. And the big question is, will they be able to have, you know, they've already had the same result in terms of getting the, the extradition law withdrawn. Will they be 
able to get uh, Carrie Lamb out of office as well is really the big question. Yes, well, we saw over the weekend, um, because there was obviously protests happening last week during the weekdays, and we Mm. saw them escalate with um, police using rubber bullets and tear gas uh, on some of the protesters, and there were reports calling some of the protesters rioters, and some people were arrested for engaging in a so-called riot and so there's a lot of um, contestation about what was happening on Wednesday and then Mm. on Sunday we saw as you've referenced and I believe you've taken um, quite some good content and put it up on Twitter to share what it looked like on Sunday. Mm. There were a lot of people cramming onto trains to get into the city and there were Mm. estimates of 2 million people which is about 30% of the population of Hong Mm. Kong in your view, do you think that Sunday was one of the biggest moments in terms of uh, mass political participation and protest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was look, it was certainly bigger than the Sunday before that, and we we already had sort of estimates of a million people out, you know, the, the Sunday the week before, and a uh, couple of days ago was was certainly certainly bigger by by any measure. Um, it, it was also definitely bigger than those protests in in two thousand and three I mentioned earlier, and the estimates of those were were half a million at the time. The only thing that really compares in terms of scale for for previous protests in Hong Kong, uh, we have to go all the way back to 1989 to the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, And back then, um, again, over a million people in Hong Kong um, came out to the streets to to protest that and to support the students in Beijing. Um, And I think that was, again, around a a quarter or a third of the Hong Kong population at the time. So um, the the scale on, on Sunday was just absolutely vast and, and really, really mind-boggling. Every every major road that runs, um, you know, east-west across the, the north side of Hong Kong Island was completely jam-packed full of people, and uh, they were marching constantly for, for, for eight hours or so, um, just a sea of, of black T-shirts um, or calling out uh, for the chief executive, Carrie Lam, to, to, withdraw, uh, to, to withdraw the the, the extradition law and for her to resign, uh, but also really movingly, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of Hong Kong identity. One of the main slogans they were calling out was um, uh, in Cantonese, Hong Kong Yan which means go Hong Kongers. Um, and just the, the, this sort of solidarity and, and the spirit of community among the crowd and the sense that this, this was really, a, you know, the, them fighting for their identity. This really came through in that powerful, powerful chant. Yes, it certainly has an existential quality to it and it seems like it has that force. In terms of where we are now, I just have to ask finally, we've seen Carrie Lam, she came out and um, gave a statement and uh, she basically said, oh, you know, clearly we haven't communicated well and you haven't really understood. I don't know why our language hasn't been sufficient, um, which is really not going to do her many favours. And um, and she has suspended uh, the bill. It won't continue yet, but it seems like there's it's still kind of hovering over people as, as an option that won't really go away. What do you think the sense is now in terms of next steps for those protesters and people who don't want to see the extradition bill, which, of course, opens up the chance for people um, to be potentially extradited to China, for example, from Hong Kong for um, a range of offences? Yeah, I think, look, for all practical purposes, that extradition bill is dead. And at this point, the government and the protesters are kind of fighting over 
the language. We're fighting over how to describe it. The government has said we're, we're suspending work on the bill. Um, the protesters say we want you to say that you've withdrawn it. Um, mm. the, the government spokespeople have already said, look, when we say we've suspended it, we mean there, there's no timetable to resume it. And by the way, we've got um, legislative council elections due next year anyway, and it's not going to happen before then. And once the elections happen, it's all off and we have to start the process again anyway. So, you know, don't worry. For all practical purposes, it's dead. But I think the symbolism of, of them actually saying that it's been withdrawn is important to the protesters and they're continuing to ask for that. Um, the other really big question about what happens next is is what's going to happen to, to Carrie Lamb. Um, when she was elected into office, when I say elected, elected by 777 votes out of that 1,200 into office a couple of years ago, she said that um, she wouldn't stay in office if she lost the support of the people. Um, well, if you needed any clearer demonstration of losing the support of the people, then I think we, we, we couldn't have had that um, more than what we had on Sunday. Um, so will she resign or will she stay in office? I think a lot of people get the sense that given, as I mentioned earlier, that the first chief executive, Tung Chi Hua, was forced out of office in similar circumstances 15 years ago, Beijing is going to be very reluctant to let her resign just because mm. of this, the message that it sends to Hong Kongers um, that they are free to, to, to really defy the Beijing authorities and, and have their way. Um, so it may be that she's forced to sort of stay in office as, as a lame duck, um, uh, you know, with you know, obviously her authority significantly undermined, rather than Beijing uh, you know, allowing her to resign and suffer sort of the, the loss of face that that would entail. Indeed. I'm going to have to leave it there, Anthony, but thank you. I think you've illuminated this situation a great deal for us and I really appreciate you explaining it so well and um, giving us a first-hand insight into what it's like over there in Hong Kong. Thanks. It's a pleasure to speak to you and, and thanks for bringing this attention and the situation in Hong Kong to, to the attention of everyone in Australia. It's fantastic. It's my privilege. Thank you so much, Anthony. I've been speaking with Anthony Dapiran, who's an author of City of Protest, and he's also a lawyer based in Hong Kong. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.